Thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to try to start the new year off right by opening the Word and letting it speak to our hearts. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to Ephesians 1. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chair around you. And in our Bibles, we're going to be going over to page 976, 976, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church and unpacking this morning and over the next three weeks um, how this prayer speaks to us today. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. All right, well, happy New Year's, guys. Have you started making your New Year's resolutions yet? Yes. Yes, um, it is time, if you're going to do it, right? Um, It is time. Um, I'm sure you're ready to become the better you that you've always intended to be, that you intended to be last year and the year before, right? To finally lose that weight or to get that degree or to stop doing that thing, whatever it is, right? All right, I'm not knocking resolutions. Resolutions are a good thing, and they can really work. They really can. If you set clear goals, write them down, and uh, have accountability, commit to at least 30 days of, of practicing a new behavior so that you can establish new habits in your life, you can actually make changes, right? I know, I, right? I, I lost 15 pounds last year. It was the same 15 pounds I lost the year before, and the same 15 pounds I lost the year before, and the same 15 pounds I need to lose this year, right? You can do it, And those are good things. So I'm not against resolutions, but I think it's worth asking if we're making the right ones. It is good to lose weight, right? It it is good to get more education. It is good to, to address these things, but they are good things, not primary things. And the problem is we often treat them as if they were. See, as we enter this new year, we as a culture have decreed that this is the time for new beginnings. The reality is this is just one more morning like any other, right? The sun came up um, just like any other day. There's really nothing special about this day other than the fact that we have decreed it to be this special day, this beginning of a new year. But there is weight in that. There's reality in that in the sense that we look at this as a season of, of new beginnings, of, of old things closing out and new things starting. And so I want to call us as a church to consider some resolutions that will really make a difference in our lives, right? I want to call us to genuine growth and genuine change, the kind of growth, the kind of change 
that doesn't just make us feel better about ourselves, but allows us to make the kind of resolutions that actually change us into the people we were created to be. So we're going to be looking at Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church um, for that purpose, to, to take a look how Paul prays that they might experience the kind of growth that brings real life change. Um, so the heart of the prayer is in verse 18. If you take a look at verse 18, this is where we're going to be getting to this morning. The heart of the prayer is this, where he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He's praying that they might have the eyes of their heart enlightened. Now, to understand what this means, I think we would do well to take a look and see who Paul is praying to. And you're like, well, Steve, obviously it's God. Yes, it is God, no doubt about it, but I think it's important we take a look at the way Paul addresses him. So take a look back at verses 16 and 17, where he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now that title, Father of glory, is significant. Paul chose it intentionally um, because it it speaks to us um, specifically about what attributes of God Paul's focusing on as he lifts up this prayer, right? So when we think about it, glory, glory is a word that we associate with great victories or great wealth or significant position, or great prestige. Glory, right? Glory is is that which we consider worthy of praise, produces awe, respect. It even provokes worship in our hearts when we see something we consider glorious. Now, it's interesting that he's not called the glorious father. That would be true. Right? I'm praying to God, the glorious Father. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm praying to God, the Father of glory. This title says something to us about his character, that he is the Father of all that is glorious, that if it is glorious, it's his offspring. <laughs> it came from him. Every glory is a reflection of his glory. So every experience of glory from from human accomplishment to to victorious battle or competition to those glorious moments, a glorious sunrise, which you probably didn't see this morning, a glorious sunset, right? When when we see glory in creation around us, when we, we experience those moments that provoke our heart to praise, that provoke our heart to that transcendent experience that there's something bigger than me and greater than me that calls me out of myself to praise something other than me. Every one of those experiences is a reflection that there is one who is truly glorious. It's a small taste of the reality. It is, a, it is a glimmer of the real thing. He is the Father of glory. He's the original substance. He is by His nature glorious, and everything that flows from Him reflects His glory. And all of creation gives us glimpses. All of human existence gives us tastes of that glory. So let me ask you something. Why, if you do, do you make resolutions? probably to improve, right? To, to make something better. You make a resolution because, because there are things in your life that you want to change. There are things you need to improve, right? So why? Why? Why do you want to lose 
weight, one of the most common New Year's resolutions? Well, because I want to be healthy, right? I want to, I want to have a long life. I want to, I want to um, have a, a, a good, healthy life, right? I would propose that more than likely wrapped up in there is a desire for glory, if we're just honest, right? Um, a lot of times we want to lose weight because we want people's praise. We want to be worthy of people's praise. We go into the, the checkout line at the store and we see the magazine and we're like, that, that image, that person is worthy of praise. I don't look like that person. I want to look like that person because I want to be worthy of praise. We, we are continually comparing ourselves to others and continuing, continually evaluating our worth based on whether or not we think we're worthy of praise. And so a lot of times our motivation honestly isn't for health. It's for a taste of glory, a feeling of worth, of transcendent value. You're like, Steve, I, I don't give a rip what people think. <laughs> I don't do it for others. Okay, that doesn't mean you're not doing it for glory. You're trying to measure up to your own expectations, your own measure, right? You want to respect yourself. You want to, to have this sense that I have measured up. I am worthy. You're still doing it in pursuit of glory. Because all of us, in the end, cares what somebody thinks. We want to be respected. We want to be adored. We want to be looked up to in some way. Now, here's the thing, you guys. That's not a bad impulse. We were created for glory. You can't make that impulse go away. You were created in the image of God, the God of glory. And you were created to to walk in His glory, to experience His glory, to reflect His glory. You were created for the experience of glory. And you will crave that transcendent value of being worth something that is greater than yourself, of experiencing a glory that is greater than your own. Now here's the catch. This is the problem. It's not a bad impulse, but it's bad the way we chase it, right? Because we were created for glory, but we were created for a glory that is not our own. We are created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. And the problem is that we aren't content reflecting God's glory. We want our own. We want to compete with God, not walk with God. And we turn what we can do or how we look or what we can accomplish to establish our worth We turn to these things to make us worthy of praise, to experience glory. And it is an empty and a vain pursuit because at our best, the the most we can hope for is to experience a a temporary sprinkling of glory and all those experiences pass. All human glory passes. So in 2012, I spoke on this passage. um, And I remember the illustration that I used uh, 2012, of course, followed the, the World Series in, in 2011, which some of you remember, many of you probably don't. But in 2011, the Cardinals won the World Series, which was kind of a big deal in our city. And uh, a lot of people were, were glowing because it was a very dramatic series and big heroes and, and big moments. And when I spoke on this, I said, you guys, I know this feels like this will never pass, but this glory will fade. This feeling of transcendence, of, of, of feeling something bigger than yourself, of, of, man, this is so big, so praiseworthy, this will, it'll pass. 
It'll become one more record in one more book, sitting on one more shelf, gathering dust. Now, it didn't feel like it at the time. I had people walking up to me after service like, nah, nah, not this one, man. And not me. I am such a fan. I am that fan. I will never get over this. I will not ever stop feeling joy as a result of this. I would challenge you this morning, no matter how big of a fan you are, that your joy has diminished. Your sense of transcendent glory has passed. It may still bring you a measure of joy. It may still bring a smile to your face when you remember specific moments. But it passes, right? And I would challenge some of you who are currently in the throes of that, right? You're like, no, man, I'm a, I'm a Cubs fan. And this year, Man, this year never passes, right? This was the year of all years. This is the year we were waiting for for a hundred years. This glory never passes. This joy will never fade. It will be true for you too. This wind will become a log in a book on a shelf covered with dust. See, the world is full of decaying statues that once celebrated a fresh and impressive glory that is not fresh any longer. Because all of life's glory, all of earth's glory is fleeting. And as a result, it's unsatisfying. Because it's only a reflection. It's not the real thing. So I want us to notice, Paul begins by praying to God, the Father of glory. The one who is by his nature the essence of transcendent glory. And everything he does, everything he is, pours out that transcendent glory. And he asks this Father of glory to give us the Spirit in a unique way. Right in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Now some of you Your translations are going to say the spirit of wisdom. Some are going to say a spirit of wisdom. One of the challenges of translating from the original language, uh, the original Greek uh, had no capitalizations. Um, All the letters were crammed together. There weren't even spaces between the words. Um, And so as a result, we come to things like this, and you have to make a decision. Is this speaking about a spirit in the sense of an experience of, or is it talking about the spirit And I would propose to you that I think there's a very strong case that he is speaking of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit here. This is a Trinitarian prayer. He is praying to the Father of Jesus Christ to send the Spirit. And and that Trinitarian nature of prayer is throughout Ephesians 1. And I think it makes most sense that he is, in fact, praying that God the Father, the Father of glory, would send to us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, this does pose some problems, though. He's writing to believers, people who've already heard and believed the gospel. So these are people who already have the Spirit, right? In verses 13 and 14, right above, Paul just explained this, right? Starting in verse 13, in him, talking about Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All right, this is a very simple and straightforward formula in the sense that that you you are given a message of good news. 
It is a message to believe, not advice to be followed. And the moment you believe it, the moment you believe in Jesus, you are sealed in the Spirit. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. God gives you His Holy Spirit. And it acts as a seal of your salvation. Now, a seal was was an ancient security system. In the ancient world, they would write letters on parchment, and they would roll it up, and they would put hot wax on the outside, and then they would take their ring uh, or their necklace, which had their family symbol, and they would press it in the wax, and and then they would send it off. And, And basically, as that letter passed from hand to hand to hand until it got to the recipient, that seal represented the authority of that family. And so basically what it was saying is if you break this seal, the full authority of this family will fall on your head. So the more powerful the family, the more secure the letter. We have the seal of God, who is the person of the Spirit. When you believe in Jesus, you are sealed by the Spirit of God. You have the very family uh, symbol of God impressed in your heart. You are secure in your salvation. You are secure in your relationship with God because it's not based on what you've done for God. It's based on what God has done for you in Christ. And the Spirit is the seal of that gift. Paul goes on to say he's also the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee means a down payment or a future experience of. The Spirit is our first taste of the heavenly blessing of a new life with God. We are once again united with a transcendent God, the author of life. And the Spirit in us is our connection to that gift, our foretaste, our first taste of our full inheritance, which will be full and unhindered relationship with God. Walking in the transcendent love and glory of God without hindrance and without barrier, that's our future. The Spirit in our lives is the down payment of that experience. So, we have to ask, if you already have the Spirit as a follower of Jesus, somebody who has believed the gospel, why is Paul praying that the Father would give us the Spirit? Well, he's not praying that we would get the Spirit for the first time, but that we would experience the Spirit in a fresh way. If you are a believer in Jesus, let me give you an example. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. If you've believed in Jesus, there's nothing left for you to earn. There's no blessing that God is withholding, waiting until you prove yourself. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That's the message of the gospel. In fact, it's right here in Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's already ours. If you've believed in Christ, you are covered in Christ, and having been covered in Christ, you have received all the blessings of Christ. They're already yours. I can guarantee you this, though. Even though you have all the blessings of God in the heavenly places, you are not experiencing all the blessings you have. You have them all, but you're not experiencing them all. See, Paul is praying that you would experience the blessing of the Spirit in a new and unique way as the spirit of wisdom and the spirit who brings revelation in the knowledge of God. So in our context, our hearts don't know true glory when we see it. We are attracted to shiny things. 
we like fool's gold. And we mistake it for true wealth. And we chase promotions in our corner office, and we long for specific waist sizes, and, and we want certain letters after our names like PhD or MDiv. See, we need the Spirit to give us wisdom, to see what we cannot naturally see. We need Him to bring revelation, to enlighten us in ways that we are not enlightened. We need the Spirit to give us a greater knowledge of the, fo- the, the Father of glory so that we can discern what is truly glorious, and to know what is truly worthy of praise, to know what is truly worthy of the investment of our lives, because you will invest your life in what you find glorious. And this wisdom comes through the revelation of the knowledge of Him. As we come to know the Father of glory more intimately, to see Him more clearly, to have our hearts melted by his love, our eyes awed by his character, by his goodness, his beauty, our hearts humbled by his strength, we will come to see and appreciate true glory. See, the same Spirit who was given to seal us in God's love is now being given to enlighten us to the glory of that love. And you have been blessed with a restored relationship with God through Jesus, but you have no idea how revolutionary that blessing actually is. Follower of Christ, you have a gift that you have not rightly esteemed. There is a greater worth and a greater wonder and a greater glory in that gift than you know. And that's why we need the Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. So now we come to verse 18 to the heart of Paul's request on our behalf. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, he prays to the Father of glory to send the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might have the, the eyes of our heart enlightened. All right, I'm going to go a little grammar nerd on you here. Former English teacher can't help himself. There are two verbs here that are working together, um, having and enlightened. And what we find here is a, a unique combination. It's a, it's, a, it's a present, perfect, passive participle. Some of you are like, Steve, it is New Year's Day. You do know I have a headache, right? Yes, I know. So just stick with me. I will explain what that means, okay? So it's present tense. What that means is that it speaks of a continual enlightenment. Not a one and done not you've seen it, and now you move on to something better. There's a sense in which this enlightenment is something you sit in and progressively experience. You've been enlightened, you need to be enlightened. You have seen, you need to see more. Enlightenment, present tense. And it's perfect, which means that the event in question has already happened, but the effects continue to be present So the focus is on the current effect of that past experience. You have been enlightened, follower of Christ. But there is an ongoing enlightenment that has grown out of that initial enlightenment. And it needs to continue to grow. You need to experience not just having had an experience. Well, I had a moment with God. I I had a crisis with God. I I had my my moment where I, I discovered faith in God. You need to have an ongoing enlightenment. It began there, but it needs to continue to have 
an effect of enlightening your heart. And it's passive in voice, which means that it has to be done to you. No, he's not, he's not saying, go enlighten your heart. That would be active, right? Take responsibility, why don't you, right? Stop being lazy. Enlighten your heart. Yeah, good luck with that. You can't enlighten your own heart because you can't see what you don't see, right? You don't know what you don't know. You don't see what you don't see. You need him to do it for you. You need him to do it in you. It is passive, which means you receive the action. You need this continual enlightenment, and you need it done for you. And you need it to be done in you. Listen, this is a powerful prayer and an incredible thing that Paul is asking for, to have eyes that are continually enlightened so that you see what is real. So you see what is truly glorious, what you see, so you can see what is truly of worth. So you don't waste your life chasing the wrong stuff. You know what's worse than failing to achieve your goals? Achieving the wrong ones. To get to the end of your journey and realize that you were chasing the wrong prize. Some people waste their lives by just being passive and never engaging. They, they never actually live their lives. They just float along. There are others who waste their lives by living for the wrong things. They climb the mountain. But it's only when they get to the top they realize they've arrived at the wrong summit. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened allows you to see what is real and evaluate what is genuinely of worth so that you can make wise choices based on a revelation that was not natural to your heart. You can pursue true glory. You can invest your life into what actually matters. You can actually experience real, transcendent glory instead of the passing, fading, deceptive glory of man. You guys, this is one of the central blessings of the gospel. And this, I believe, is the absolute best New Year's resolution we can make. And if you're still awake and paying attention, you may see a challenge here. You may be asking, Steve, how can we resolve to do what must be done for us? How can we resolve to do what we need another to do in us? How can I resolve to see what I can't see? Man, those are really good questions. I'm glad you asked. So let's talk about that. Here's what I think we can do to at least begin to enter into this. First, you can prostrate yourself before God. You can pursue humility. That's what that means. See, Paul is leading us into a place of humility. He is leading us into a place of, of dependence. You know, when you think about it, most of our resolutions are, are about us fixing us, aren't they? Most of our resolutions are about having greater self-control or, or, or doing something better or, or stopping to do something that has been, you know, like a rut in our lives. Our behavior keeps running into this rut and we're, we're going to stop running into this rut. And, and in the end, what it comes down to is the gospel of work harder, try better work harder, try better. 
our little self-salvation projects where we are trying to transform ourselves. The problem is, even if you achieve what you set out to do, it will not give you what you hope to get. You may get your rock-hard abs. You, You may get your PhD at the end of your name and find yourself even more miserable than when you began. You know why? Self-effort is really, really good at producing two things. Pride and shame. That's what the gospel of work harder, do better produces. Pride and shame. Think about it. You you resolve, man, I'm going to start going to the gym. I need to start working out. And that's really awesome. It is good. I mean, it's healthy, and, and I encourage you to take care of your body. I encourage you to work out. But you know what happens in your heart. You've been to the gym like three times, right? And you look at your neighbor who's sitting on the couch, You've been three times. And you're looking at them going, man, they are so lazy. Can't believe that. They are so, they should be more like me. I've been to the gym three times. You know what I'm saying? Like, how long does it take for us to have this inflated sense where we are looking at our accomplishments and measuring our glory by what we perceive as our wonderful strength and looking down on the weaknesses of others? The problem with pride, though, is that it inflates you, but it never leaves you inflated. It will crush you because you will fail. It's like a roller coaster where it takes you up and then it plunges you down into shame. The gospel of work harder, do better is really, really good at at filling you with pride and then covering you in shame and making you feel like more of a failure than you've ever been, like somebody who can never be measured up and it fills you with a deep sense of condemnation which is a blanket over your entire life where you feel like, I cannot measure up. I can do nothing good. I don't have any worth. Which, by the way, means I am completely divorced from glory. I'm completely separate from what is worthy of praise. See, pride fills us up to the point where we're filled with an inflated sense of our glory and then fills us with this emptiness of glory. Listen, we can't fix ourselves. That's why we need the gospel. But we can call our hearts to humility. We can recognize that we can't do in us what needs to be done and choose to humble ourselves before the God who can. Scripture is very clear. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. So we can prostrate our hearts, humble our hearts before God, and that will lead us to pray to the Father of glory for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In the same way, Paul pleads with God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to send the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He is modeling for us where this needs to lead us. We need to, in our humility, in this place of brokenness and need, pray. We need to ask. You guys, prayer is the language of humility. A humble person prays. A proud person will not. Because a humble person senses their need, and the language of that need is the request of prayer. When you know your need, you ask. And so this flows out with just a plea. God, God, Father of glory, will you give me the spirit of wisdom and a revelation? 
that I will see more of who you are, more of your character, more of who I am and, and how that spills out. And I can see in this place of pain and brokenness how there is redemption. I can see in my own weakness how there is the, the room for your spirit to bring redemption. I have need. Will you open the eyes of my heart so that I can see what is real and worthy in my life? We can't fix our hearts, but God can. So we need to ask God to do it. And here's the thing, you guys. God always honors those prayers. God gives grace to the humble. When we come and we plead with God for the spirit of wisdom, He'll give us wisdom. When we plead with God for the spirit who brings revelation, allows us to see what we do not see so that we can see more of His glory and more of ourselves, He gives it. Now, we're going to talk about this more next week. It often doesn't come the way we're asking for it to come. Because we want to dictate not just what we see, we want to dictate how we see it. But he will give it, and his gifts are good. So we need to pray. And finally, we need to preach. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. So we need to humble our hearts and bring our needs to God. And then we need to lead our hearts back to the gospel. The gospel is such a simple message, isn't it? God loves me and sent his son to die for me. He was my substitute in death so that I could become his partner in life. When he rose from the dead, he didn't just rise for his victory. He rose so that I could stand in his victory. He took my shame, he took my guilt, and he gives me his righteousness. Jesus died for me. It is such a simple message message. It's so simple that we often forget the profound implications that it brings with it. It's so simple that we often grow cold to the radical love that it communicates. It is so simple we often treat it as if it were a uh, children's story to be taught in Sunday school, not a radical truth around which we need to reorient our entire lives. Tim Keller wrote an article called The Centrality of the Gospel. And in it he said this, We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs of our faith. It is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom. It is the only way we make any progress in the kingdom. The main problem then in the Christian life is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and on all parts of our life. Follower of Jesus, let's be honest. Isn't it easy to grow cold to the radical nature of this message that we hold to be so dear? To get to a place where we can speak of Jesus and and even speak of the gospel as something we know with very little heart response to the reality of that love. Because it is a message of radical love that calls for a response of deep humility. 
It is the greatest gift ever given to mankind. And it should draw out of our hearts an awe and a wonder and a trust and a hope. And yet our hearts grow so cold and our minds so prideful. We know it in our heads, but we don't get it in our hearts. We stop responding to God's incredible radical love and we just speak of it. We're kind of like the main character in the movie Memento. Any of you see this? This is kind of old school stuff here. Memento was uh, a movie in which Guy Pierce played this guy, Leonard Shelby. If you haven't seen it, um, I just want to warn you, it's a little violent. Um, and I'm not going to give away too much of the storyline, even though it definitely has been around long enough that I should, but I won't. Um, but here's the thing. The lead character suffers from short-term memory loss. He is continually forgetting who he is. So he starts every day not remembering the day before, or the day before, the week before, the month before, all the way back to a very specific event. He starts every day not knowing who he is or what he's trying to do. So every day he has to rediscover. So in order to take care of that, he, he takes Polaroid pictures and, and hangs them on the mirror so that when he gets up in the morning, they will remind him these are important people, these are important events. There were facts that he was learning that were so important, he tattooed them on his body so that when he would get up and go look in the mirror, he'd be like, wait, there's something here I need to pay attention to. There's something important about who I am and what I'm trying to do. This is a perfect description for us. The gospel is good news about how God turns sinners into saints, transforms people from who they were into who they were designed to be, completely reorients their heart's desires so that they're no longer on the treadmill of self-effort pursuing what can never be gained, but can actually see genuine worth and glory and have their hearts aligned with what is real and lasting. The problem is we keep forgetting. This is the blessing out of which every other blessing flows. But we keep forgetting the blessing that leads to every other blessing. We need to tattoo the gospel on our hearts by renewing our wonder in God's glorious love continually that our eyes might be continually enlightened, that our hearts might be undone by this incredible transcendent love, that we might not simply speak of the glory of the gospel, but we might be walking in the reality of hearts undone by love. And in that light, we might be able to evaluate all the other glories that compete for our attention and for our heart's affection. You guys, we're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking the rest of this prayer. There are three things that Paul says flow out of having our, the eyes of our heart enlightened. We're going to see the hope of his calling. We're going to see the glorious of inheritance of his saints. We're going to see his surpassing glory. We're going to be unpacking those in the weeks to come. And I look forward to doing that with you.
for this morning, what I want to do is just wrap us up and ask us to um, respond. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to put some questions on the screen, ask you to create some space for the Spirit of God to both convict your heart, but also space for you to come humbly and plead with the Spirit of God. And he might do what he is yearning to do anyway. We're going to share communion in a moment. That'll be introduced um, after our brief time of response. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Father of glory, that in your glory, you didn't grow offended or angry to the point of rejection at our attempt to steal your glory, to set up competing glory, to turn to things that aren't you and asking them to be you for us. You didn't reject us. You pitied us. And in your pity, you reached out in love to solve a problem we couldn't solve, to pay a debt we couldn't pay, that we might have renewed hope and be restored to the sanity of being creatures in awe of their creator, designed to experience the infinite outpouring of your love once again reunited with that love. I thank you that you are a humble God, Father of glory, and that in your humility you invite us back to sanity. I pray for us as your people, as your church, that we might embrace that love and allow it to clear our vision, that we might know what is true and real and worthy. For your glory, for our good. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.